Welcome to 2.23am. I'm Christine McDougall. Today my guest is Jim Breen. Jim is well known in the Irish business community, first because he is the founder and CEO of Pulse Learning, which offers learning solutions to companies globally. Two years ago, following an appearance on Ireland's The Secret Millionaire, Jim started a wonderful initiative, Cycle Against Suicide. In our dialogue, you will hear the rapid evolution of the cycle and just how this has been touching and changing the lives of so many people. Jim has also been a significant contributor and supporter to 2.23am. We are very excited to be hosting our first international event in Dublin this November 11th. Links for the Cycle Against Suicide, information about Jim, his appearance on The Secret Millionaire, and information about our event on the 11th of November will all be available on the show notes, which you can access at blog.223am.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Today I am speaking with Jim Breen, the founder of Pulse Learning and also the, the man behind the wonderful initiative in Ireland, Cycle Against Suicide. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Good evening, Christine. <laughs> uh, so I'm in Australia and Jim's in Ireland, which means that we are almost on the flip side of time zones. Uh, so, Jim, these uh, podcasts, we start with the opening question, metaphorical or literal, what wakes you at 2.23 a.m.? Would you be willing to speak into that for me, please? Sure. Um, so I guess, metaphorically speaking, what wakes me at, at 2.23 a.m. is mostly around um, the the willingness of people to reach far above average in the things that they really are passionate about, the things that, that serve their purpose. Maybe to explain that, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm 44 years old and I grew up in Ireland in the, in the 70s and 80s. And you know, back then, the 70s and 80s in Ireland were were like, you know, the the 40s and 50s in in Australia or, or the US or, or even even the UK, like we were, we were so backward. Um, I remember my my father, every Christmas after the Christmas dinner would would write a letter, his annual reminder to the Department of Post and Telegraphs for our application for a telephone. And I would have been a, wow. a teenager, you know, a young teenager before we we got that phone, and you know we were just just such a backward place. And growing up in that wow. environment, you know, even a, member, a very good friend of mine, Rob Carley, spoke recently of, of a similar experience he had where, you know, when you would be at school and you got your exams, you know, an A result would, would please your parents, but it wouldn't make you very popular with your friends. An E <laughs> result would uh, make you very popular with your friends, but not with your parents. So there was this magical letter, the letter C, and that would be the... <laughs> The, the mark you'd strive towards, you know, the kind of the 75% mark. Um, and that kind of 
desire to to fit in, but but more than just peer pressure fitting in, that desire to to just be average was was very much the psyche of, of Ireland back then, and it's so different today. Mm. You know, we do a lot of work with cycle against suicide and with the school system in Ireland. We we visit a lot of students, um, a lot of schools, meet with a lot of teachers, and speak at a lot of uh, school conferences. <coughs> Excuse me, and there's a very different. Um, there's, of course, there's peer pressure still today, but there's a very different level of confidence around putting your head above the parapet and being prepared to be exceptionally good at at that which is your passion. And mm. at 2.23 a.m., it's really, you know, the concern that there's so much that we can do um, that we we can achieve together and particularly, you know, my own um, passion of um, suicide prevention on the island of Ireland. You know, our slogan is, our tagline is, our, our motto is, together, shoulder to shoulder, we can break the cycle of suicide on the island of Ireland by encouraging people to know that it's okay not to feel okay and that it's absolutely okay to ask for help. And the power of that, very simple messaging, but the power of it being done where it is young and old, it is male, female, it is all sections of society because mental illness um, isn't sexist or racist or ageist. It, uh, it can attack anyone. In fact, it often attacks the strongest of us. Um, and the idea that, you know, we can have a better response than just saying, well, we fall within the average rate of suicide in Europe or in the uh, developed mm. world or, or whatever, and therefore that's good enough that Christine wakes me up at 2:23 a.m. That attitude that falling within the averages um, is good enough that that's that that hurts me. And that 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 hurts mm-hmm. me in a, in a pretty big way. So so how because um, there's a lot of places I could go with this. So let's start with with uh, with your your journey with with this or to this point. Uh, because I get from from the time that I've spent with you that you're not someone who's who you may have at school to fit in with your peers and so on with that C um, grade, but you're not someone who's generally um, chosen the average path. I guess um, I guess as you know, as I said earlier, I'm 44 years old, and in a way, you know, life is just beginning. The, the journey is just starting. And I'm very grateful to be surrounded by exceptional people and inspirational people, mm. people who are, you know, outliers and rule breakers. Um, and I, I do get my energy from, you know, people like that and spending time and listening and learning and being coached by people like that. But that wasn't necessarily always the way. And I think that's the case for many people. Um, you know, the journey begins wherever it begins. And that's all very important and it's all part of the makeup and it's not something that you you want to throw away or discard but it's only part of what's what's making you who you are today and and who, who you are today is only part of what's going to make you who you will be in the future so for me the um the last you know maybe 20 years have been much more closer to where um i believe i am and the last five years of that 20 years have been closer still, and the last two years 
have really helped me um, you know, be, be true to myself. And being true to myself is is very much around this this whole notion of you know, spending time understanding what what the purpose is, what my purpose is, and you know being true to that, letting go what needs to be let go. Um, I heard heard recently um, a story from a friend of mine who um, is very friendly with a with a couple who have a hundred possessions each, and that's it. So you mm. know, a knife yeah. is a possession, a fork is a possession, a pair of shoes are two possessions, and it's it's a hundred possessions each. And I just thought, you know, isn't that so liberating? <laughs> you know, the amount of, yeah. of baggage that we <laughs> carry around with us. But it's not just sort of material baggage. We carry a lot of things with us that we don't need, that don't serve us very well. And I think the closer you get to understanding what your true purpose is, um, the closer you are to being able to to be ex- exceptional you know in your in your endeavor to to serve that purpose and even even mm. this conversation christine i wouldn't have even you know used this language or talked this way just a few years ago you know it wouldn't have it wouldn't have made sense to me so i'm not sure if it's going to make sense to any of the people listening to the <laughs> podcast either well you know uh i'm aware um because we've spent some time together i'm aware of some parts of your journey and uh so you let's let's sort of if 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 you're okay with that let's sort of go to um start with the business part and then how you from there how you have arrived at this uh creating this uh a wonderful initiative in Ireland which is cycle against suicide so we can so can we sort of wind back a little bit because you really uh you you have um an entrepreneurial heart and you've built a very successful business um, so can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So <clears throat> in 1999, I founded a company called Pulse Learning. And today, it really is a it's an unbelievable business. But it's got an incredible team. Like we're, we're just really, really fortunate. We've got a, such a strong culture. And we've got such a strong sense of purpose. And... We've got clients that love us and partners that love working with us, and it truly is a—it's an amazing business. And we provide uh, learning solutions online and mobile, blended learning solutions for corporate clients around the world. So, ANZ Bank, Commonwealth Bank Australia, Virgin Airways in Australia, Australia Post, clients like BP and the British Army in the UK, <coughs> and clients like. Um, Bank of America, Citibank, Pfizer, Merck, uh, and many others in, in the U.S. And we also have clients elsewhere around the world, including Canada and, and, and Europe, uh, clients like Ericsson and uh, the Canadian Defence Forces. So we do we do a lot of great work with a lot of great organisations. Um, but the the common thread through all of the work we do is it's all about trust. Um, our clients trust us. Um, we trust our partners, um, and above above all else, there's a huge degree of trust within the Pulse Learning team. And as a result of everything that we do being based on trust, we have a fairly complex business that we've managed to simplify to the nth degree. So it, it works really well um, in a very tough market. And we do very well in a very tough market. 
and we punch mm-hmm. above our weight in a very tough market. But it's all coming down to trust and the ability to be able to build and sustain trust with all the parties that we work with. So Pulse Learning is, um, has been a great and is a great um, journey for me. And it's been a great journey for others who work within the, the organization. And, you know, we're, we're also at a, at a point of that journey, which is, you know, we're, we're pivoting. Um, the business is changing fairly significantly. And I've got the, um, the great role in the business right now to be able to guide and lead that change. And it's, it needs to uh, change because the world around us is, is just changing so rapidly. I spoke earlier about our application for the for the telephone, and um, when eventually yeah. the team of six men came and brought the cable uh, all the way to the front door and drilled a hole through the front door and left the cable hanging inside it, it was another six months before another team of six <laughs> men came along and fitted the telephone set itself to the cable, and that was just the pace that we worked at back then. Whereas you know today, the speed of change is just, you know, it's hyper-dynamic. And with Impulse Learning, we've been able to um, pivot and change um, and, and adapt to the changing environment rapidly uh, over the last 14 years. And we're, we're, we're needing to do that again right now. And, you know, business plans that made sense uh, on a three- to five-year timeline, you know, really make m- a lot more sense now on a one- to three-year timeline. And and then I believe yeah. that you know going forward that those timelines will will be even shorter. And as a result of that, you've got to you've got to hold on to that which is truest to you. And in our case, that's that's trust. You know, trust doesn't doesn't change. Trust is the is the common factor that it's that we've we've built for the last fourteen years, and we'll continue to build for the next fourteen. So, so can you say how you, you know, because trust is not, uh, is not a throwaway word. When trust really lives in an organization and with clients, it's rock solid. So, so, you know, it's not something that happens by accident. So how did you go about establishing that? You know, what are, what are some of the, the key pieces that uh, inform this bedrock of trust in post learning? Well, I think it's a really great question, and um, I was actually thinking about it yesterday as I was um, as we going for a walk. And I guess to be a little bit negative for a second, um, and, I, and I I don't like being negative, um, but I I'm concerned right now about the level of trust that exists in business today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we do a lot of work, uh, and I travel all around the world. And what I'm sort of more vulnerable to and and concerned about is not the 95, <coughs> excuse me, percent moments where people live by their values and by the by the organization's values, where people live by their principles and, and the organization's principles more or less. N- not the 95 percent moments. But the five percent moments, the moments when mm. you're being tested, and I'm just noticing, and maybe it's because I'm more aware of it now, um, more frequently when those five percent moments come along, and people quickly abandon the values and they they abandon the the principles 
both at a personal level and at an organisation level. And in a way that's that's been limiting to pulse learning, in a way it's been liberating to pulse learning. And by that I mean, I just don't believe in working with those organisations, um, and that's limiting in terms of it does limit the the, the industries or the, the companies that you want to work with. But it's also liberating because it does mean that you're you're very upfront with people that you know those five percent moments are really when people's um, impact is being judged, and ultimately, I, I think we judge ourselves by our intentions, but others judge us by our impact, and mm-hmm. it's the impact, particularly in those five percent moments, that that people really judge you by. They're they're the ones that you know stay when the um when the storm has passed and you're 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 left with that legacy. So I think in a pulse learning context we're we're probably build more trust when we're tested than in the normal scheme of things. And it's not that you go about looking for things to be tested on, you know. Um the world is such no. <laughs> they get thrown at you all the time. And particularly they get yeah. thrown at you as I said in those in those five percent moments. So I think I think, Christine, if that makes any sense to you, that's really what what I'm always on the lookout for, and I'm I'm very lucky to have a team um, surrounding me. You know, particularly you know our chairman Bill Hennebury, who who is Mr. Integrity, and um, you know to have people like that around you, um, it, it makes it easier to ensure that you do make the right decisions and you you do live by your values, by your principles in those in those moments when, when you're being tested. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting conversation because um, you know, I've heard people quoting values when no one is looking, do you do you keep the same values when you're on your own and no one's you're not showcased to anyone. But also uh, I my sense of where business sort of starts to erode itself is is uh with what has been termed little atrocities, which is the tiny, tiny, almost inconceivable um, transgressions that occur that you can step over on some level, but you're speaking about not stepping over them at any level. And it's it's sort of holding that stand, uh, even when the odds are not looking colourful and and just staying consistent consistently behind the values that you espouse. Is that is that what I'm hearing you sort of say? Yes, and I think the the good news is that when you build a habit organizationally or individually about doing the right thing when you're tested most, it makes it easier to do the right thing when you're tested the next time. You know, yeah. it, it is something that it builds resilience in you and in the organization. Um, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned before and you mentioned just there about the little atrocities. And I think that's a really great way of, of seeing it. And it's trying to be aware of them. It's trying to um, really query what your response is and why your response is as it is when they when they occur. And it's yeah. really about, you know, and, and obviously, you know, this is not simple, right? So you've got to acknowledge that other people, there's more than one right, just like there's more than one wrong. Um, yeah. So there's more than one right way to to respond, 
but there's but there's many many wrong ways to respond and it's about acknowledging you know what are the the various right ways and then you know selecting one of them or if there's only one of them selecting that way and and living with the consequences but you know again like it was it's just a, a small thing um you know I was on a boot camp I was, I was talking to you I was on a boot camp on on Saturday and you know we were working in teams and it was it was a lot of fun and you know at the start of the first kind of test one member of our team you know jumped the gun to get a little advantage and yes that's fine but, but he didn't jump the gun from that point on because it was just clearly understood that that was that wasn't right you know that wasn't a behavior yeah. that was acceptable and it was only a small thing in a in a boot camp and again we're not trying to live our lives perfectly but to me I was really pleased that you know there was a sense of hey that's that's not living true to what we're here for what what purpose we're trying to serve today and you know that happens in business it happens in family it happens in your personal life it happens all over and um and I do think that you know to your original question how do you how do you build trust i think you build trust in the 5% moments much more effectively than you build trust in the 95% moments because it's right. in the 5% mm. moments that people are going to be judging your impact mm. so you've spoken so far you know a lot about um this deep sense of purpose uh and, and i'd be i'd be very um interested to hear um even within Pulse Learning, if the purpose with which you started the company is stayed sort of the same or has it matured or has it changed or do you have a stronger sense of purpose in the company, can you say a little bit about that? So I've never I've never thought about it like that before. Um, but off the top of my head, I do think that the sense of purpose hasn't changed and I can say that for the following reason. Um, so I'm a civil engineer by by profession. And mm-hmm. working in the building industry in Ireland and internationally in the in the 90s, you know, it was a, a world where, um, you know, it, in an Irish context, but also UK and, and Germany, it was filled with um, people and businesses that weren't necessarily um, operating at the, the highest levels of integrity and, and honesty. Um, mm-hmm. And it was also an industry that I was doing really well in. And I woke up one morning concerned about that, concerned about the fact that I was seeing things going on around me that um, really weren't, you know, honest and they weren't um, they weren't right and yep. they weren't correct and yet I was I was thriving you know my career was thriving within that industry and my fear was that if you continue to stay there um, would would your you know your principles get eroded would your would your integrity get eroded and and I, I honestly believe they, they would have a little bit like earlier, yeah. you know, I spoke about the fact that I get my my energy and my my um, my my sort of ability to maybe think differently and break the rules and think non-conventionally and, and maybe do things that other people 
would find harder to do because of the people that, that I, I surround myself with. And similarly, you know, surrounding yourself by, you know, less noble and less honourable um, people and systems uh, would do that. So when Pulse Learning was founded, it was founded really as, in a very selfish way, to, to create an organisation that I would be totally comfortable in from the perspective of mm. integrity, trust, community, teamwork, etc. And when we created our values within Pulse Learning, you know, it was no surprise that integrity and trust and teamwork and community, um, you know, were very, very high up there. And yes. from that perspective, it hasn't changed. The sense of purpose in terms of how we went about things hasn't changed. Now, now what we do is very different because, as I said earlier, the world is a very different place. So the, the products, yes. the solutions, the services that we offer our clients are radically different than they were back then. But how we go about yes. it and how we deal with clients, and again, you know, I, I can I can say this openly, um, there's a lot of our largest clients and our and our biggest contracts for for a lot of the 14 years we we never had a written contract for and it right. was just that Lovely. was the way yeah now now that's yeah. changing that's changing rightly now because again the scale of the business you know when it scales up you do need to put more more structures into things but this the same essence of trust is still there and that you know we don't once the contract is signed, it's it's you know metaphorically filed away. They're all it's all online, but it's it's not opened up again. It's not looked at again. And if you have to look at a contract, you've already lost. Um, if you have to go back and and have a dispute about what you said you'd do and what the client was supposed to do, you, you've already lost. So we 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 take an approach which is not a, a soft approach. It's sometimes a very hard, tough approach, but it's based on trust and it's based on you know making sure that we're we're straight talking. Um, we're yeah. we're querying. We're we're hearing the response. We're acknowledging, and we're straight talking again. You know, and that it's that cycle mm. of, and and to do that, um, you, you you can only do that, Christine. I believe if you've got a bedrock of of trust around you, and you've got a bedrock of, um, you know, integrity built into the organisation, built into the people, and yeah. built into the system. Hmm. That's a. I've actually written it down. If you, um, you, if you have to look at a contract, you've already lost. You know, <laughs> very profound um, statement that I think a lot of uh, companies could do well to listen to. And my my suspicion though is is that the 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 build of that relationship, which you just sort of spoke into, um, in a in a. Um, somewhat small way because I know it's actually the, the, to build that is very significant it's not something um, that you you enter into I mean this is a relationship that that has uh, by what I'm hearing endurance and quality and depth and and so um, what you know how long does it take you to to reach that place or sort of is there a is there a process and this is obviously you and also your team to reach a place where you you feel that you've got that type of relationship and the contract is almost secondary well um if i can answer that in a, in a couple of different ways i know yeah. that however long it takes to get there 
it only takes a fraction of that to lose it. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can lose all of this literally in literally in seconds. Um, yeah. The second thing is, I don't think... So I think the there is striving to get there. It's not there as a destination. It's the there is a journey, not not the destination. So it's it's about... Because, you know, you've always got new clients, new employees, new partners. So it's, it's always a work in progress. Um, yes. But I think I, I lost... I lost a dear friend of mine, Bernan O'Connell. He, he died in May of this year. And Bernan worked yes. with Pulse Learning for a long number of years. And Bernan and I would, would go for little walks, you know, um, just to get a bit of fresh air and have a chit-chat and, and you know, get some headspace. And I remember relatively early on when when Bernan was... Um, was chatting to me on one of those talks and, and he spoke about the fact that and Bernard actually was was a real um, he argued um, you know forcefully with me about not writing yeah. down our values because he felt they didn't need to be written down he said Jim you have got we have got impulse learning a culture that he he'd not experienced in any of these jobs and he's, he'd worked all over the world. He'd worked in the U.S., he'd worked in the U.K., he'd worked in Ireland, he'd mm. worked in lots of different types of businesses. And, you know, Bernan was, was in his 60s when he, when he died last year, and he had a, a long career behind him working in all sorts of different places. And he said, nowhere else does this culture exist. So don't mess with it. Don't try and write it down. Don't try and describe <laughs> it. Um, you know, what should become... Uh, and, and he meant this in a, in a respectful way, but if what you'll become is, you know, one of those multinational organizations that, that has the values written down, but they don't mean anything to anybody. And yeah. he was concerned about that. But mm. we found a we found a way of, of, of writing them down where um, it, it was least offensive to him. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 the point, I guess, was that you are probably the last person to know when you have it. And you, as a leader, as the entrepreneur, <clears throat> are probably the last person to know when you've lost it. You have to be okay. looking at mm. your culture, your values, um, through the eyes of other people. And it's, mm. it's when you see that the automatic response um, and the deliberate response and, and both because again the automatic response comes in the 95% moments and the deliberate response comes in the 5% moments and when you see that those responses automatic and deliberate are being are, are coming from the right place and going to the right place by your team without your involvement then you know you're, you're, you're getting there and again there is still just a journey not a destination yes, yes. but that that takes um, a lifetime, um, mm. but I think it also starts from, you know, the, the the second that you establish a business, or if you feel you don't have it, it starts from right now because, you know, it is harder to reclaim it than to build it from scratch, but it's always reclaimable, and it's 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 all you know. I, I believe firmly that even organisations that that don't necessarily have it, they can get it. Um, and obviously, yeah. the, the smaller, the more nimbler 
the organisation is, the, the easier it is. I, be, I believe it's also tied down to industry. Um, and yes. if, if you're working in a in an industry where, you know, the um, for example, you know, I I personally don't like the the gambling and, and gaming industries. Um, I don't believe that they, you know, they that they do anything good for the world. I believe the, you know, industries of of tobacco etc. aren't doing good to the world. I think it's harder for people yes. working in those organisations to find a true sense of purpose. Um, I wouldn't yes. be able to. Now, I'm not saying that, that nobody else can, but I certainly wouldn't be able to. And I think that um, you know it begins with you know really thinking really thinking hard about. I heard recently this concept of you know are you writing your resume or are you writing your epitaph? And I think if you're writing mm. your epitaph, you're you're going to choose much different things than if you're write, writing your resume. And you know within Pulse Learning. I think we're we're a company that people can write an epitaph with, and, yes. and that that to me is a really massive marker um, or measure that we're that we're doing most of the things in the right way. Yes. So just before we move forward um, to your more recent journey and and cycle against suicide, you know, part of what I'm hearing you speaking into as well is that there is a level of attention as the founder and the CEO and the entrepreneur um, that requires um, a different form of listening. So you, you, you made this comment about um, um, you know, often being the last to know if the values have been eroded and so on. So could you just speak a little bit about how you... Uh, um, Give attention to your to your company that um, you know may have may have some perspective to it. Does the question make sense? Yeah, um, I I do believe that there are there's a need as an entrepreneur to do more than just listen and see and smell. You know. There are other senses you have to and touch and feel. There, there are other senses mm. that you have to engage, and you know, one of the, and again, this is not scientific, but one of the senses that I think you need to engage most when you're when you really are trying to understand and feel where your organisation is at is your gut. You know, you have to yeah. go with your gut on things and you know right now we're in, in one of the organizations I'm, I'm working with where we're um we're hiring a ceo so not not impulse learning but in a different organization and you know it's not necessarily going to be the most qualified person and it's not necessarily going to be the most experienced person it's not going to be the person who's got the uh the, the best iq or the um the best references it comes down a lot to gut. It comes down a lot to, you know, how that person is interacting and able to interact with others and how much of a fit there is. And, mm. you know, under, and understanding that people are in different parts of their journey. So so I think, Christine, it's it's really trying to engage all of your senses to listen to those things, to to, to touch, to feel, to smell, to look at it and to... But but ultimately, 
you know, to trust your gut as well. And I think to trust your gut, I was talking about this uh, recently with somebody, I think you yourself have got to be in a good place. And, you know, for me, um, eating healthily, um, avoidance of alcohol, um, exercise, um, taking time out to, you know, get into nature, all of that is important for me in order to make sure that, that, that I'm able to, when I'm engaging, whether it be in cyclic and suicide or impulse learning, then really able to be attentive to what's going on around me. Mm. And doing that when, hey, like we all live the world where you're you're traveling for weeks at a time, you know, every day you're in a, you're on a plane or a train or you're traveling, you're in a different hotel every night for weeks on end. Um, you're eating, you know, food out in restaurants rather than being able to make it at home. You're, you're dealing with different time zones, different cultures. It isn't easy. It, it absolutely isn't easy. But even then, for me, I know it's still important to, to get exercise, to try and eat as well as you can, to try um, as, as best possible to sleep um, as, as best you can, you know, allowing for time zones, etc. Yeah. Because if you're not doing that, you're not attentive to um, what's going on around you. And, you know, we can we can all try and be superwoman, superman. Um, but ultimately, for us to be really effective, we, we have to be able to, you know, hear our gut, see, see, what, see what's going on around us and be, be attentive to it. And I, and I don't believe that mm. that's an easy process. I believe that's something you you really have to have to work on. Yes. So so tell um, if you could share a little bit about how you um, or the where the impulse came to start cyclists against suicide. Well, <clears throat> I guess the the quickest version of the story is. Um, Mm-hmm. In September two years ago, I appeared on um, TV here in Ireland, uh, a program called Secret Millionaire. And yes. I I don't watch TV. Um, and I was approached by RTE, which is the national broadcaster, a number of months previously to see would I would I be interested. And um, not watching TV, but but only going by the title. It sounded to me something like Desperate Housewives. So I, I, said, <laughs> I said, no thanks. Um, the idea of, of Secret Millionaire being a, a label that you would be labelled with it was, was not uh, not appealing to me. But in fairness to... Uh, <laughs> sorry? Go ahead. No, yeah. I was going to say, have you watched Desperate Housewives, Tim, or you know it vicariously? <laughs> <laughs> I watched Desperate Housewives, no, but I've seen the trailer, I think. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, uh, so go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted that, you. That's there. okay. Um, <laughs> but, but when um, when RT, they're the national broadcaster here in Ireland, when they yeah. um, they, they were persistent, and I agreed to meet with them. And I live in yeah. Kerry, which is on the southwest coast of Ireland, and they're based in Dublin. And I said, look, I was actually, uh, I, was, I was actually when they rang me. I was um, at my home in France at the time, but I was going to be back in Kerry two days later. And I said, look, I can meet you in Kerry. And it's kind of a litmus test for if they're serious, they're going to travel. It's a bit like yeah. people in Perth, you know, saying, hey, come come visit us. Because uh, if people are serious about doing business in Perth, they've got to they gotta go and do, you know, they've got to they gotta make, the, make the voyage. So yeah. when I met with them, 
um, a few days later. By that time, I'd seen a couple of the episodes that send them on to me as a as a link. And it was also yeah. the time in my own life, Christine, where I was beginning to acknowledge that I've battled with depression since my earliest childhood. And mm-hmm. I thought that there might be a potential, there might be something that we could create out of the program. And after a couple more discussions with RTE, I said, I'll do it. And there's a couple of conditions. And they immediately said, look, absolutely. I know one of them will be, you'll want to edit the final uh, version. And yes, we'll give you editorial rights. I said, no, I'm not interested in that. Um, Whoever I'm working with, I'll trust that that'll be done professionally and with integrity. That's not a a condition. What is a condition is, Mm -hmm. it has to be authentic. And something is going to come out of this. I don't know what that is, but something will come out of it. And when that something um, becomes visible, I'll want your support. And I'll want you to give me that support. And they said, well, I'm not really sure how we can promise to support something that uh, (laughs) we don't even know what it is. I said, well, that's the condition. So they thought about it and they came back and they said, look, we'll do our very best. And I said, I'll I'll hold you to it. So when the program Mm -hmm. aired, and it was coincidentally, it it was... two years ago this month and it actually aired again coincidentally if you believe in coincidences it, it um, aired on World Suicide Prevention Day September 10th 2012 and wow. the response to the program was incredible and the response to the program was incredible because the, the four different sets of people that I got to meet within the Secret Millionaire program were just incredible people, absolutely amazing people. And their stories came out through the program. And yeah. I was a bystander in it. And it, it, it rightly, the program wasn't about me and it, and it shouldn't be about, you know, um, the, the secret millionaire. It should be about the, the people that the person is meeting. And the, yeah. the director of my episode was a guy called Gary Keane and he did this amazing job directing it. And when it when it aired, it got a bigger response than any other episode has ever got. And part of the reason that it got that response was there was some seed planted clearly subconsciously by me that I wanted to do something about mental health. So when people responded and you know contacted me, invariably it was with love, empathy and support, but also with how can we help? And mm. a week later, after you know doing certain media stuff, I decided to take a, uh, a few days off, and I cycled uh, part of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, which is in the north of Spain, and it's a pilgrimage yeah. route that's been done for you know for for centuries. And um, in on that cycle, I had time to think, and the idea of cycle against suicide which would be a cycle around the island of Ireland where we would visit schools and where we would encourage people to know it's okay not to feel okay, which is something that it had taken me 42 years to get to. And it's absolutely okay to ask for help, which had also taken me 42 years to get to. Because, Christine, I didn't think it was okay not to feel okay. And I didn't believe it was okay to ask for help. And by knowing Mm. that it's okay not to feel okay, and by knowing that it's okay to ask for help, 
when you need it, that's evidence-based, proven to reduce the incidence of suicide. Now, it's only one right. intervention. There has to be other things like reducing access to lethal means, um, making sure that people in at-risk groups are given the support that they need through you know, various organizations, voluntary and non-voluntary. And also the people, you know, first responders, gatekeepers, medical professionals are given the training that, that, that is required also to deal with this very complex issue, which is suicide. But one yeah. intervention is encouraging help-seeking behavior. And Cycle Against Suicide has become an incredibly powerful force in encouraging help-seeking behavior and doing it in a very safe way, in a way that's very evidence-based, in a way that's um, very secure, thought through and considered. So Cycle Against Suicide, in its first year, I had this crazy ambition that we'd get, you know, maybe a thousand cyclists to take part over two mm -hmm. weeks. And we didn't get a yeah. thousand. We ended up getting two and a half thousand. And wow. last year we doubled that. And next year it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be close to 10,000 people take part next year. But also wow. the schools initiative where we brought student leaders, 16, 17-year-old student leaders. The first year we brought together 40 student leaders from all over the island of Ireland. And we had a, a conference with them where they input into what they believe the school's program within Cycling and Suicide should be. That culminated the next year. Instead of it being 40 students, we had 4,000 student leaders gather hmm. in the RDS in Dublin, which is one of the, the biggest um, you know, arenas you can have to accommodate 4,000 students. And it was a day yes. where 4,000 students took the messaging, owned it, um, brought this movement um, from Dublin that day back into, you know, 130-odd schools or 160-odd schools around our island. And this is just building, the momentum is just building again. So we know that um, coming into uh, 2015, it's going to be bigger and louder and clearer again. And it's it's something, again, where if you believe in averages, you won't part of cycling and suicide you won't get it you've got to believe in we can do the exception we can break the cycle of suicide on the island of ireland together shoulder to shoulder it can be done and it's incredible christine there are a million stories of people who have taken that message and applied it and adopted it and as a result lives have been saved as a result and people have asked for help and got the help that they've needed. And as a result, we're in a position where this enemy, which is suicide, we're now better armed and we've got better tools to be able to fight the good fight against it. Not as a campaign, but as a movement, as something which is, again, a journey which we've we've begun now and the momentum is most definitely with us. And it has to be because... It's a, it's, a, it's a ruthless enemy. You know, suicide, as I said earlier, it often attacks the strongest of us. It often attacks um, people who, you know, are um, in uh, their careers and their, their, their personal lives and, 
and their vocations would be seen to be very successful often. And yet this, this mm. illness is there attacking them, along with attacking much more vulnerable people. But to, to arm ourselves to really fight this good fight, we have to do it as a movement. We have to do it in a way where um, it is shoulder to shoulder. Yes. So um, I've, there's actually so many questions that I want to ask you about this. Um, one of the questions from a global context, because I know suicide is affecting uh, countries all around the world. I don't know the statistics from different countries and so on. But when I was in Ireland, it, it became really evident that this was something that affected almost everybody to some degree, which... Uh, and I found that really um, stunning. I mean, that could be the case here in Australia, but I haven't experienced it to the same level. Can you, do you know anything about those statistics or is, is there anything, any reason why this is, this is such a high incidence in, in a country like Ireland? Or do you think this is, the, the, you know, this is sort of goes back to your average, um, your, where we started the conversation, which um, is... Um, you know, not not a, not something to look at with any degree of um, pride. So, again, a, a really a really great question. Statistically, um, Ireland is no higher a rate of suicide than than anywhere else in the developed world. Um, okay. For some of the age groups and demographics, we might be on the lower end. For other um, right. age groups and demographics, we might be on the higher end. But overall, um, we're, we're average. Um, okay. I'm wow. spending time in Australia, in the UK, in in the US, talking about uh, suicide prevention. It's actually a very similar response you get from, from wherever we were, wherever I, I, I go. But but the difference, Christine, is Ireland is a is a really small country. You know, we've got mm. on the, on the island of Ireland we have six million people, and yes. it's not six million people spread out, you know, as as far and wide as six million people might be spread out in a country as large as Australia. So we've we've got yeah. the benefit that we're an island. We've got the benefit that it's a relatively small population and we've got the, the benefit that it's not that there's vast, you know, tracts of land where, you know, are uninhabited. So we have a real opportunity to create a compelling movement with messaging yes. that everybody can get the chance to become aware of and that the behavior mm. change can happen. Mm. And, and I firmly believe in the power of movements. I firmly believe that if the messaging is clear enough and compelling enough, you can affect change. We're just, I guess, fortunate that we've managed to raise awareness of the issue so that instead of people... Um, shine away from it and instead of the stigma winning through people are much more open to talk about um, their relationship with either personally or through somebody they know who might have been Mm. battling depression or anxiety eating disorder self-harm suicidal ideation suicide attempt or people who are bereaved by suicide and you know, there's there's often it's often said that you know one in four people will um, will have a, a challenge with their mental health at some stage in their life. I don't think personally, I don't believe that to be true. 
I believe that everybody at some stage will yeah. be touched by it, whether it's touched mm-hmm. by it themselves or their daughter, son, sister, brother, parent, colleague, clubmate, best friend, etc. And what we're doing is we're making sure through Cycle Against Suicide that not only are people encouraged to um, ask for help, but if you have people who are asking for help, you have to have people who are prepared to give help. You have to be prepared to pe- have people who are able to guide people as to where the help can be found. So the educational aspect of making sure that, you know, for example, um, in Ireland the police force is, is called the, the Garda, Garda Siakona. And the, the, so the police force in Ireland in certain districts They've all been trained in safe talk. So instead of, yeah. as a simple example, if there's somebody about to take their life uh, on a bridge, in the past, you know, the question might have been, are, are you all right? And you yeah. know, a question like, are you all right to somebody who's clearly not all right um, is, is difficult. Whereas instead, the appropriate question is, are you about to attempt to take your life by suicide? Now, by saying it that mm. clearly... And by saying that directly, the person, number one, feels understood. And number two, it's a little bit of a jolt as well to them to to, to realize exactly where they are, because often, you know, they're not necessarily thinking clearly. And simple, simple examples like that are very doable and practical. So we, you know, I I think there's a huge amount that um, hairdressers, barbers, because a hairdresser, barber, it's such an intimate and you know, job yeah. that they have. They're so close to their clientele and their clients tell them all sorts of things. Taxi drivers where, you know, people might be under the influence of alcohol uh, late at night, sitting in the back of a cab and talking because they don't have to talk face-to-face. You know, again, this idea of shoulder-to-shoulder. One of the things I love about cycling is men don't talk necessarily as well um, about these issues as women do. But if you put two yeah. men on a bike beside each other where they don't have to look into each yeah. other's eyes and they're able to chat shoulder to shoulder, they don't shut up, you know? And yeah. <laughs> very, very powerful. So certain professions such as taxi drivers, hairdressers, guardi, etc., we can do things very practical. So again, I, I know that suicide is a, is a complex issue and I know that any intervention is a complex intervention. So you need to break it down to what are the simple things that can be done. So we engage very um, clearly and with coherence with the schools. And the work that we do with yeah. the schools is is invaluable in tackling this at that demographic. And then next year, um, we you know we've also engaged with businesses, etc. I'm also um, just now talking with members of the prison service in Ireland. And that's another area where, you know, there's a lot of good work can be done to um, mm. to deal and tackle with the issues that are there. And again, there's an absolute need for professionals, you know, qualified psychotherapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, GPs. That's absolutely clear. There's an absolute need for, for, for them to play a part. But they're not the only people that we need to engage in this army. You know, teachers... Yeah parents, brothers, sisters, siblings. Um, it's it's a war that we all need to fight together, shoulder to shoulder, rather than this is a job for the just the professionals, the professionals for sure, but it's also a role that we can all play a part in. 
You know, I, one of the things that I think that you're doing that cannot be uh, overstated or understated, I can't, you know, the, the, it is that you're actually making a conversation about mental health. Um, you're destigmatizing a conversation because I remember even in, this, in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how you were raised in the 70s and, and so on and the telephone lines, etc. Well, I, you know, I remember when my daughter was six and um, I was involved in a relationship with somebody who was bipolar. And uh, my, my daughter's father was absolutely terrified that, that um, this person would do harm to my daughter. You know, <laughs> this kind of like scrambled wiring around, you know, what bipolar is and what mental health. And then there's also this huge stigma that I still think really exists, which you sp- spoke into yourself. You know, you were 42 before you could actually have this conversation about your own depression, before you could reach out. Uh, so, you know, it, it, even the huge significance of of having a conversation around the state of your mental health be a, a, a normal part of conversation without um, some of the dreadful stigma that has been attached to that is a massive achievement, Kim. You know, just enormous achievement. Well, I think I think timing is critical, Christine, because I think that as a, as an island here, you know, on the the western seaboard of Europe, um, right now is the time to really tackle this issue head on. I'm not sure if it would have been possible to do it even 10 years ago. Um, Mm. And I believe, you know, from from spending quite a bit of time in Australia and quite a bit of time in in the UK and in in the US and engaging with people around mental health issues, I believe that the time is right there as well. And, you know, mm. for that, I guess, you know, you, you've got to seize this window of opportunity. But it also does take um, a sort of an entrepreneurial approach rather than, you know, a, a civil service approach to it right yeah. now. And I'm not saying that, you know, a bureaucracy is, is a bad um, type of organization. I'm just saying it's not necessarily the type of approach we need to take right now. I mean, I give an example. Part of the um, part of cycling and suicide. So we we have a cycle every month, but we have a big cycle yeah. for two weeks every year. And in that two weeks, yeah. we cycle about 100 kilometers every day, and we visit uh, two schools each day. And in the evening, there's a homestay program. Now, the homestay program yeah. is where um, homeowners around our island give up um, bed in their in their home, uh, an evening meal and a breakfast to cyclists and to crew. Now, yes. that's an impossible thing to make work, right? But we make it work. <laughs> um, we, had a, we, had a, we, had a, we had a prime minister once in Ireland who said, um, that's all very well in practice, but it would never work in theory. And, yes. you know, we, we've got to take the approach that, um, yes, certain things like homestays where, you know, the madness of, of thinking that you could put up, you know, 400 um, people every night um, of, for, for 14 nights, it's, it's ridiculously impossible. And yet, yet we just make it happen. Yes. But here's the thing. Mm. When it happened, the magic really started. Because yes. we had thought 
that the purpose was to provide, you know, free accommodation for cyclists. Mm. Because we charge for the for the two weeks, it costs forty euro, which is like sixty dollars, and and for yes. that forty euro, you get a jersey, and you get free accommodation for as many nights as you want, and you can take part in a half a day, a day, or all fourteen days. So for forty euro, you can get a two week holiday around the island of Ireland. Um, yeah. you know, you can, and you can really and, wow. and the reason we do that is because we say this shouldn't be about and nobody has to raise money nobody's forced to, to to fundraise and the beauty about that is that we get true engagement but but yeah. we thought that the homestay program was going to be about helping this to be done you know for for as little money as mm-hmm. possible but what yeah. actually happened and you touched on it earlier was it was actually an opportunity for conversations to happen in homes, yeah. many of yeah. whom had been affected by suicide or other mental health issues, but had never been given the license to have the conversation. Mm. So the, volu- the people who volunteered beds in their homes um, had a connection of sorts, some of them, not all of them, but had a connection of sorts with mental illness or suicide specifically. And the power of the um, homestay program was evidenced not just by the cyclists and crew thanking us at the end for um, you know organising the, the 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 program so that they had uh, free accommodation, but it was by the homeowners yeah. who came back and said thank you so much for allowing us for giving us the license to have the conversation that we just haven't had before. I met a I met a man in Donegal who lost his dad to suicide in 1978 and he told me I lost my father to suicide in 1978 and I said I'm very sorry to hear that and and I always ask people you know what was what was the person's name because generally people say my brother my sister my aunt my uncle my colleague they don't say the person's name and he said my my father was Paddy and I said I'm very sorry to hear about your loss he said, but but that's that's not that's not what I'm saying. So I, I, I said, okay, um, I'm sorry. He said, I lost my father to suicide in 1978. And this is the first time I've said those words. Mm. And you go, wow. wow. And to carry that burden of mm. almost, you know, 36 years, whatever it is, of carrying around Mm. with you this burden of not being able to tell that your dad died by suicide and having Mm. to make up another story and live that lie and to find an opportunity of unburdening Mm. yourself was just just so powerful, you know, and and you put your, your finger on it, Christine, it's about opening dialogue and conversation and giving people the license to talk. Now, I'm not saying that that's the total solution. We we know it's not. Yeah. But it's a vital cog. It's a yeah. vital first step for people in order to, to yeah. find. And sometimes, you know, um, you're dealing with, we're dealing with people who are bereaved by suicide. And to be able to talk with other people who are in the same situation, to know that eventually life does go on and things eventually get a little bit easier um, is such a, a remarkable 
an, an incredibly powerful support to people who were recently bereaved by suicide. So, you, you know, yes. you're looking at bringing people together, opening that conversation, and, and not corralling it, not, not having it too structured, not having it too bureaucratic, not looking mm. for averages, looking for the miracles, looking for, you know, the exceptional opportunities. And that's why, you know, Cycle Against Suicide is very entrepreneurial in the way that we, we tackle the issue because I believe mm. it needs to be entrepreneurial right now in this window of opportunity that we have. Now, Jim, I, um, cause I, we're, we're going to wrap this up in just a moment, um, but I, there was one thing that I wanted to say, and uh, I had the, the, uh, the good fortune of experiencing a, a cycle, a spin-off cycle in Dublin in August this year, and, you know, the, the, the processional effect or the side effect of what you're doing is, is far-reaching and I think will have consequences above and beyond anything to do with suicide because so many of the people that are participating and this, this relies on massive volunteers and, and uh, you know, all of that. And, and I, would, I would find it very easy to say that what they're getting from the experience of volunteers far transcends even mental health and suicide um, and this sort of circles back to the entrepreneurial approach and, and just the inspiration and the, the deep desire to do something at a, at, a, um, at a personal level that contributes to society. I mean, there's all of those things that, that are, um, you know, part of the greater story of Cycle Against Suicide. So, you know, it's really an inspirational thing that you've done in such a short space. What you have been, have done with the help of a lot of people in a short space of time. The final question for this is: I, I just wonder if you could speak into how this real recent journey has shaped you. Um, I think there's two things to say on that, Christine. The first is you're dead right. It, it has been it has been very much a we. Uh, you know, mm. it, this this is something that right from the get go, and I guess maybe it's part of my own journey that 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 you learn that things are much less about I and much more about we. So right from the very start, mm. it it wasn't based around any one personality or whatever. It, it had to be, you know, the creation of a movement had to be something where you know it was about communities. It was about people. Um, the second thing is. I do it for very selfish reasons as well, but I've actually learned a new word last week, and it's it's mm-hmm. self-full as opposed to selfish. Ah, um, oh, lovely. Growing up, I think, you know, again, Ireland in the 70s and 80s, the idea was you were told, don't be selfish, don't be selfish. But in fact, yes. people who whose purpose is about giving need to be self-full, because unless you're self-full, you can't give. And yeah. I've found this a very self-full experience whereby for my own mental health it's been exceptionally helpful and yes. for the friendships that it's brought to me for the experiences for the magic for the for the gift of community and love and empathy and support you know I would do this all day long <laughs> uh, for the yeah. rest of my life based on what mm. I've got out of it and you know what that's okay 
So my my Catholic guilt would have said to me, <laughs> you know, this shouldn't be as 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 beneficial as it is because you know this is about um, other people. It's about giving back, and, and it is. It's about other people. It's about giving back, but but it can also be really good. And and for the volunteers, the reason people come back and volunteer time after time, the reason that they give up so much of their time. And um, for for no fee, for no for no um, for no salary, is because they get so much out of it, and and yeah. you experienced it, Christine, when you kindly agreed to take part in one of the monthly spin-offs, um, and when you see it, um, it does become so much more powerful, and you know yeah. certainly from a from a personal perspective, it's been one of the the greatest gifts that I've ever been been given. Well, on that note, um, I, I want to thank you so much for the time that you have given to this conversation uh, and for the work that you're doing in the world with your company and the way that you are being an exemplar for the space that you've created and the team that you've created there and for the wonderful inspiration that uh, Cycle Against Suicide has become in Ireland and I know it has touched other parts of the world. So thank you so much, Jim. Uh, I really appreciate this conversation and I deeply value our friendship. Thanks, Christine. Me too. If you want more of 223 AM, then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 223am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 223am on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23am. That's 2 underscore 23am. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223am. Till next time, thank you for listening.